Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Big Conversations Little Bar. My name is Patrick Evans and we are live from Little Bar in Palm Desert, California. And I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Randy Florence. It is great to be here with you, Patrick, particularly today. I want to let everybody know I am sitting next to the newest inductee into the National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences Silver Circle, Mr. Patrick Evans. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. That is an award that they give. Uh, it's, it's, in essence, a reminder that we should have retired some time ago. You described it as some sort of a longevity <laughs> it's a long award. Ge- no, it's a, it's a big honor. Uh, I was inducted into the Silver Circle uh, over the weekend, but you have to be nominated by somebody else within the Academy, and then it's voted on by the Board of Governors. So it was a pretty big deal. It was a really big deal, and I'm proud to sit next to you on it. Well, I was very excited to do that, and I appreciate it. We got a great guest today. We really really do. I'm really excited to introduce uh, to the show today Scott White, president of the Visit Palm Springs. Visit Greater Palm Springs. Visit Greater Palm Springs. Visit Palm Springs. What's it called? It's Visit Greater Palm Springs. That's it. Just visit Greater Palm Thanks Springs. Thanks for being here, Scott. The, the, the interview's <laughs> over, Randy. The interview's <laughs> over. We're done. This won't even... I'm actually, this, out. Is, no. this is becoming a drinking game for the show. <laughs> Just can, about any time I make a mistake or there's silence. Well, you can imagine sweet. that if we can't get the name of your organization right, you can imagine how well-researched all the questions are going to be. <laughs> I do appreciate them having a name like Scott White. Actually, we prefer to, to operate under the radar. So, yeah, the, the least you know about us, the better we are. Uh, I'm going to start, and first of all, I just want to, I want you to kind of tell me a little bit about uh, how long you've been with Visit Greater Palm Springs and, and what brought you out to Palm Springs in the first place. So I've been with Visit Greater Palm Springs now 12 years. Um, <clears throat> came here from via San Antonio. I was in San Antonio at uh, Visit San Antonio, the Convention and Visitors Bureau. Is that really what it was called? It was the San Antonio Convention and Visitors Bureau, yep. Okay. And... Um, my wife and I had moved there from Phoenix, and great city, great people. One day she looked at me, and she goes, this isn't working for me. And uh, I said, okay. So I started looking around, and this job had just opened up. And I was here, moved here in 1988 to 96, lived in the desert, worked out at, back then it was Desert Princess Resort, became Doubletree, moved over to Esmeralda. And I always had fond memories. And I just remember I moved here in 1988, I think it was 20 at the time. And I moved here in February, and I thought, this place is great. Why isn't there more people here? This is 1988. February. And then July rolled around, <laughs> and I thought, what the what <laughs> am I doing here? <laughs> 20 years old. But what happens over time, when I left at 96, I cried. I was like, this place is amazing. But you had to move on to you know, further your career and get the experiences and so forth. And so when it opened up, I jumped at the opportunity to come back and call this home and live here full time. When you said you started at the hotel, what was what was your role there? I was sales manager. So I was a sales manager, worked my way up, became um, like an associate director of sales. Then they moved me to Seattle to be director of sales and marketing in Seattle. Um, and going from Palm Springs to Seattle, that was tough too because, you know, again, you move there in the summertime, it's beautiful, and the winter rolls around, and it's like, <laughs> what am I doing here? Where's the sun <laughs> for six months? What got you on that path? 
Um, I grew up in Monterey, and Monterey, you were either you were a fisherman, or you were in the hospitality industry, or you're in the military. Those were kind of the three options. My dad was in the military, so I thought, mm, not sure if I'm going to go down that route or not. I tried fishing for two summers, probably one of the hardest jobs, you know, growing up in as, as a summer job. Commercial fisherman one summer and a deckhand on a party boat the second summer. I thought this sucks. It was great, great money, but, <laughs> but this sucks. <laughs> this sucks. It's great, but this really sucks. So, because uh, you're out there for two, three days, and you come back and you stink, and you just it's just that's it. It's a you've mess. got all your fingers. It, I'm impressed. It took about five years to get my skin back on one of my thumbs because yeah. you're pulling the fish off and you're putting them in the thing, and it just eats away at your skin. But um, so then started working in restaurants and hotels and um, basically one day I was working at the Monterey Plaza Hotel as the maitre d' assistant manager of the restaurant. I think I was 18 at the time. I was probably the only one that would take the job because um, the manager at the time had all kinds of issues and was never there. So, so I was, you were really I, by default. I was, I, I was management, yeah, by default. I was only the dumbest one that would actually take the job. <laughs> so and then every day the sales managers would come through having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with their customers. And I thought, that's what I want to do. This sucks. Closing the restaurant at 2 o'clock in the morning and getting back up at 6 o'clock in the morning and opening back up. I want to do what they're doing. And um, the gentleman at the time obviously didn't want anything to do with me. I was 19, whatever it was. He's like, oh, you're a kid. You're a diamond in the rough. Come back when you're older. And then he left, and a new lady came in, and I started bugging her. And she's like, yeah, let's give it a go. And Nancy Foy was, uh, I'll never forget her. She was great. She trained me. She, she took me under her wing. She showed me the ropes of how to be a great salesperson. And that's where I kind of got my foot in the door. I was going to Monterey Community College. And I said, do I keep going to college or I, do I pursue this? And I decided to s- stop the community college and do the, the hotel management, sales management uh, sh- full time. And then that hotel was going through financial issues. It was bankrupt. It was really having all kinds of issues. The owner of it was running out of money. Literally, the purchasing manager was running up to the front desk to take money out of the till. That's when we use money to go down to pay the meat purveyors and everybody else like that. And all of a sudden, I noticed I get to the bank and I go to cash my, my paycheck. And the bank would go, can you come back about 3 o'clock? There's no funds yet. Wow. So the so Nancy comes in. She goes, it's going to get worse. There's a job in Palm Springs. Remember the guy that didn't want to hire you? He wants to talk to you now. Phil Dickinson was his name. Great guy. Anyway, so I flew down here in February of 1988, whatever it was, and uh, interviewed with him. He gave me a job and never looked back. And that was a sales job? That was a sales job as well. Yep. And then uh, that got bought by Doubletree. And when Doubletree got bought, Esmeralda was under cons- was opening up. So I joined them in April of 89 on the pre-opening team. And it opened in October. And um, Stouffer, it was Stouffer Esmeralda. So Stouffer was a great company. Great to work for. They didn't know anything about hotels. So they just left us alone. <laughs> That's the best kind of boss <laughs> it was to a, have. It was, a great, <laughs> it was a great parent company. Like, oh, you just, just keep doing what you're doing. So it was fun. Have you... You had somebody, obviously, who helped you move the direction you wanted to move, which was the sales side. Yeah. In your career, you had the opportunity to do that for people? Yeah. I think as you're, you know, you always try to help other people. I mean, I've had a lot of mentors over the year, people that have given you advice and try to help you. And yeah, absolutely. Over the years, I still stay in touch with quite a few people that I remember one gal in Phoenix, Jarrell, Anthony. She was working at the, at the receptionist at the front desk and she just said, hey, I want to get into sales. And Today, she's killing it. I mean, she's been doing all kinds of different sales jobs across the country. She's working for Nashville for a while. Now she's in Vegas, doing great. But there's lots of people like that that you want to try to help and guide and impart any little bit of wisdom that you know. And half the time, I'm telling you, do half of what I tell you and 
and then ignore the other half and you'll do great. <laughs> <laughs> so what took you to Phoenix? Well, I was in, I was in Seattle um, at the Stouffer Madison Hotel. That, that became, it was a um, uh, renaissance, got bought by Marriott, and the owner turned it into a franchise. So I went from being almost 10 years with Stouffer slash now Marriott or renaissance uh, to becoming a franchise. And my boss at the time, who was the regional, took the job in Phoenix with the CVB. And he was the one that said, hey, come work for me in Phoenix. And I really didn't know much about what CVBs did at the time. And um, so I flew down and, you know, I obviously knew him, learned about the CVB world. And um, I said, yeah, let's give it a go. And um, how different are those worlds? Very different. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like that's a that's a kind of a steep learning curve when you're coming out of the the hotel industry and sales. And then so talk a little bit about that transition. Yeah, and we hire a lot of people. Um, obviously, it's a huge benefit to understand the hospitality hotel business. So we hire a lot of people from hotels into the, into the what we'll call it the DMO world. And I always tell them it's going to take a good year to 18 months for the light bulb to kind of go off to understand how you're thinking, operating, and you know, kind of working through all of this. And they always go look at me and go, no, no, no. And a year later, they come to me and go, yeah, you're right. Because at a hotel, it's... 24-7, 365, your, your product is right there. And as a DMO, you're selling so many different types of products, so many different types of experience. There's the political side of things. There's the stakeholder side of things. There's so many what I call customers that we have, right? Um, you have to understand your decisions and what you're doing and how you're doing it, what that impact's going to be. There's a much bigger domino effect down the line as you start to refer business or do partnerships and work with people and so forth. So it, it takes a while to understand that. But I would say 90% of the people that have ever that have done it love it. Some will go back and say, I can't do it. I love the energy of the hotel. I love that, you know, kind of love all of that. And you can see it all through fruition. Whereas with, with us sometimes it takes, it can sometimes take years to say, here's the direction we want to go. We want to get there, but it'll take, it's a much longer path to get there and sometimes people don't have the patience for it well i get asked this all the time people give me a hard time about being the weatherman in palm springs you know like how hard is that it's sunny (laughs) it's hot okay which is not true obviously there are lots of things going on but i can ask you the same question i mean how hard is it to get people to come out here and visit i mean it's a pretty nice place to to come yeah yeah and so (laughs) yeah for you know for certain times of the year yes so we, I mean, obviously we promote the destination year round. Um, if I go back, if I really go back to the beginning when I first took the job, the organization was focused, 95% of their resources and time and staff were focused on trying to bring group business to the destination. They really didn't have the budget. They weren't marketing or branding the destination. And so, and that was the same mindset. Hey, Scott, everything's wonderful here. Why, is, why are, everybody would come here if they want to, right? And I said, well, okay. We're competing against Phoenix Scottsdale. We're competing against Vegas, South Florida, Southern California, you name it, Hawaii, Cabo. And they're all marketing their destination. They're telling the story effectively. We're not telling the story. And what was happening is the meeting planner would come in and fall in love with the destination. So we would fly people in. They would experience it. They'd go back. And the president, vice president, executive director, whoever's making the decision says, we're not going there. Right. You know, it's, it's not it, well branded. It's, it's, it's so we well, don't it's, know the it's yeah, it's it's for retired people. It's go that's where you go to retire. There's no airport, there's nothing to do, it's hot all the time, on and on and so forth. So the the misperceptions about the destination were very significant. So we did a survey nationally and some internationally, both with consumer, media, meeting planners, on and on and so forth. And those that didn't know our destination had that perception. Retirement community, didn't even know if we had an airport didn't really know anything about the destination 
at all. And then those that had been to the destination, a third of the respondents, described us as an oasis. Beautiful, relaxing, um, on and on and so forth. And so at that time, convinced the board to raise the T-bid. We're funded by a tourism business improvement district. It's 85% of our funds come from hotels with 50 rooms or more. So 3% goes on to the room rate when they check, when they check out. And then that money comes back to us to remarket the destination. So that's the majority of our pot. A couple of years ago, we added vacation rentals. So they charge 1%. Um, and, um, but back really 2014, 15 is when we started marketing and branding this destination to the consumer. Before that, they had a couple hundred thousand dollars that they were marketing and branding to the consumer in the summertime only. Hmm. And to go back to your original question is, how do we fill summer? How do we fill need periods? How do we move group business off of weekends? A lot of groups that go and do meetings, say, in Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Atlanta, Dallas, wherever, they're used to the weekends being more attractive in terms of rates. They come to a resort destination like ours, and we want them to be midweek. So how do we move them off the weekend? Because weekends are going to sell out with the drive traffic from Southern California, with the fly markets as well, obviously. Um, and then, so then the other thing that we noticed through all this, we started marketing, we started branding, but the pushback was both on the group side and the consumer side is it's, it's too hard to get to, it's very expensive. So then in 17, we started doing air service development. And so what I learned was is the airport is, is really handcuffed by the FAA and what they can and cannot do. We're not, we can do whatever we want. So we started air service development, uh, we hired a firm, we started putting money away, and the first call we got was from JetBlue through our air service consultant saying, hey, JetBlue wants to fly from New York to Palm Springs. Um, it's a Monday, and they want a half million dollars a year for a two-year commitment to market the flight in New York. You guys can help control what the, you can sign off on the creative, and all that money will be spent 100% on PR and marketing. We said, great, and I said, okay, what's the, what's the I'm waiting for the but, and they go, <laughs> they need an answer by Thursday. So if you can imagine, if we were still funded by all of the cities, there's no way we would have a, an answer by Thursday, trying to get everybody to agree that we should be spending this kind of money on a flight. But now that we're funded by the TBID, you basically go to our board or you, know, you can pretty much talk to them and they're like, get it done. So we went back to them literally the next day and said, let's go. And that's how we got JetBlue. And then from there, we started meeting with Southwest and Delta, United and American. And our number one priority is how do we grow longer distance markets like D.C., New York, Atlanta, East Coast to hubs and then grow summer. So how do we keep the flights going through the summer um, to become that year round destination that we should be? Well, I would say that one of the big victories for you guys, and I've noticed that I've lived here for 20 plus years. And just in the last several years, air service has gotten so much better. I mean, obviously, it's been a focal yeah. point for you guys. Yes. Okay. That first day watching a Southwest jet fly over my house into the airport. That was pretty cool. That was, that was a cool. big move. And, and they were, Southwest, they're wonderful people to work with. And when every time we would meet with them or fly them out, we would ask them questions. And they kept everything really close to the vest. I mean, they never gave us really any indication on what it would take, when they were coming. At the time, they were trying to set up their flight to Hawaii. And they kept saying, once Hawaii's done, once Hawaii's done, once Hawaii's done. And Hawaii took like, it was supposed to take two years for Southwest. I think it took like four or five. I forget. It took a long time. And uh, I said, we still have to wait for Hawaii, or can we just kind of get this going? And then the pandemic help hit, and that helped us a lot as well, because they started moving routes around. Um, but I think credit to the team and to Avion Pacific, who really nurtured that relationship for us, that we had kind of proven to Southwest that we're worthy of an investment, and um, we're going to be behind them 100%. And so we do a lot of marketing, obviously, in the flights, in the destinations they come into to make sure that 
Um, the flights are full. We're talking to them all the time, like what flights are doing better than others. And we can go in with extra marketing in those destinations that are important to them. So the tool for you guys is the ability to market specifically for the airline to help out filling their flights, using your budget yep. to, to, to market outside of this market to get people on those planes to come here. Exactly. And our policy is if there's, for example, Southwest started a flight from Oakland, we have no other flights from Oakland. So we, can, we can call out Southwest specifically in Oakland saying, please, you know, fly Southwest. Did you know they're flying daily? Same thing in Vegas. But if there's more than one carrier, then we do a more generic did you know that there's two non-stops or three non-stops a day, whatever it may be? Or we might list the multiple airlines. Usually in the 30-second spot, you don't have time to communicate that. It's just letting them know that there are flights available um, through TV, digital, radio, billboards, a little bit of everything. So I doubt that the first page of the president of the Convention Bureau's playbook talks about how to get through Visit a pandemic. Visit Greater Palm Springs. <laughs> Greater Palm Springs? Visit Greater... <laughs> What's it called? <laughs> I'm going to write it, write it down. <laughs> Wasn't the first page of the playbook, how to deal with a pandemic. But let's get into that in a minute. Tell okay. me, where were you before the pandemic? It seemed like the momentum taking place in this valley was tremendous. 19 was, a, was our record year mm -hmm. uh, for the destination. We had the highest occupancy, ADR, revenues. I mean, we were clicking all cylinders. We had consumer business. We had group business. Everything was... We were flying along. Things were great. Um, and then I remember when the first story started coming out, and uh, I remember talking to Rolf at the at Indian Wells about the yeah. tennis. So and they were the first big event to cancel. Yeah, and I was calling him. I was like, Rolf, you can't do this. You can't do this. Come on. This, this is like the flu. This is going to be over in no time. <laughs> Just come on. Let's do this. And you know, who, who would have guessed that it was going to be that big of an impact globally and to our industry? It was devastating. Um, was the shutting down of the tennis tournament really the first thing where you said, oh, my God, this is, this is happening? That and then the music festivals. Because I, th I figured, I knew that Ellison and talking with Rolf and all of that and his connection with his, the health side of things, that they were going to be ultra conservative and very, very um, sensitive to all of that. So when I saw that, I thought, okay, that, that's one. And then when the music festival shut down, I thought, okay, this is real. Yeah. And then I thought, well, you know, it gets hundred and. 10, 15 degrees. That virus can't live here in the summertime, right? It's gonna, we'll be good. We're going to be good. So pump it up the staff. We're going to be good. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. Trying to do rah, rah, rah. And then that summer came and I was like, okay, let's hunker down. We got to figure out another strategy here. And so what was that strategy? Yeah. What, like, the strat how did you pivot at that point? So at that point, we realized that we have over, we have thousands of businesses here, restaurants, small businesses, hotels, you name it. Very, very diversified. And we knew that being in California, the, the messaging that was coming out of Sacramento was very confusing. And so we knew that we needed to be that communicator of trying to separate kind of the gray areas and give people guidance and reassurance on how do they access resources, what information is correct, what do they need to do today, when are they in you know, potentially violation of some legal issues, whatever it may be. So we really became kind of a resource and communicator for all of that. And unfortunately for us, we had been really putting kind of money aside, hoping that when airlines come, sometimes airlines want what we call minimum revenue guarantee. And we've signed those in the past. So the airline may say, hey, we're going to fly for two years. We need the, every year we need a guarantee of X. And if we don't make that revenue, you have to submit the difference of it. So we're putting money away thinking 
there's going to be some huge needs with Southwest or other people. To and, do. and you would actually have to write a check directly to the airline. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Unfortunately, uh, we only had to do some small checks a couple of times, um, but for the most part, they've all done very well. So we've been we've been very lucky on that. So we had money set aside. So the organization was physically sound. We were good. Um, we did furlough people based on what their um, jobs were, and they obviously were able to get um, you know um, unemployment. But we made everybody whole in terms of their benefits. We made sure everybody had their medical benefits throughout the pandemic. So everybody was made whole. We pretty much kept 90% of our team. And I think that was a game changer for us. When I look at a lot of other destinations around the country, even in California, a lot of them lost 80, 90% of their staff. Wow. Uh, How big is your staff? We're 64 right now. So, um, so we pivoted to that. And, but at the same time, what we started doing is we, we, we wanted to stay in front of the customers and let them know what was going on. So we were doing webinars and we were doing health and wellness type stuff. So we were communicating with the customers, communicating with the press, really promoting the fact that we're wide open spaces. We're this beautiful resort destination. And I mean, organically, as you know, everybody wanted to be outside. Golf went through the roof. Things like tennis and pickleball went through the roof. Outdoor hiking, all of the outdoor activities, we were positioned perfectly for all of that. So yeah, I mean, as they say, I'd rather be lucky than good. In that case, we were lucky that we were in this beautiful destination. But I think we also had the ability to keep our staff, keep them focused, stay in touch with our customers, both on the group side, the media, travel trade, which are travel agents and tour operators, really just stay connected with all of them about what we're doing to keep the community safe. We did a safety pledge where people would pledge to say, this is the things that we're going to do to keep you safe as you come into our business and things of keeping things clean and so forth. I'm having flashbacks now. I can't believe we're talking about that. But, you know, so we did this whole safety pledge um, and really just trying to communicate to the world that here's all the things that we're doing that, you know, uh, we're committed to their safety. We're committed to providing an environment as best as we can that's going to be conducive to you to you traveling um, as things started to ease up from the pandemic. And as you know, there was hills and valleys throughout the entire um, time frame. But, um, you know, I, I think I'm proud of the team and the things that they've accomplished. And um, I know a lot of businesses didn't survive, but a lot did. And uh, I feel like our destination is probably in the, in the best situation it's ever been that I've ever been part of. It's a testament to you that you you made your team whole with with health benefit. I mean, what that what a great thing to do through this pandemic. So that's that's terrific. Yeah, I mean, I I, I treat people the way I'd want to be treated. So if I'm in their shoes, right, if, I mean, you're stressed out. Are you going to have a job? How are you going to, you know, medical is obviously the number one. Start thinking about the things that people are worried about. And we would touch base with them all the time in terms of here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. Don't worry. We're, we're financially sound. You have a job. Everything's good. Hang in there. You know, every, you know, every week was different. Are you, know? you back to uh, pre-pandemic staffing levels? Yes. Um, we're going to probably be even above that. We're going to add a couple of positions here for next fiscal year. So we'll actually be above it. And you said 2019 was a record year. That was the biggest numbers you've done. That's going to be eclipsed. So our, our economic impact study is coming out soon. Um, I can't share the numbers yet, but 2022, unofficially, it will be the record. Really? So good, it, yeah. it didn't take any time after the pandemic to get back to those pre-pandemic levels for you guys. Exactly. I, I, and, and when I got here, and I got the job in 2010, and we we're just coming off the financial crisis. And Palm Springs took six, seven years to recover, whereas like Phoenix and Scottsdale and some of these other, San Diego, they took two or three years, maybe three years on average. We were double kind of resort destinations around the country. 
And I think a big part of that was the fact that there wasn't funding there for us to get the brand out, to get the messaging out, to really, you know, diversify who we're communicating to. We got to communicate Gen Zs, Millennials, Xers, Boomers. We have to be communicating to, to all levels. We can't just pick one. And so that messaging is different. The type of messaging is different, as you know. Um, so we needed the budget to be able to create different types of creative messages, different vehicles, um, and really make sure that when people think of Palm Springs, they understand exactly what it is. And the foundation was great because one of the things that we've you know, found in the survey is that the name, the destination, was a positive one, right? Everybody had positive connotations about it, other than what I talked about earlier, right. which is the, the retirement you know, part of it. But it's safe, it's beautiful, all these things. So we had a good foundation. It's like we weren't trying to undo something that was negative. We, now we can just build. And if you think about it, you think about the events that we have here. We have events here between the music festivals, tennis, the film festival, Modernism Week, and so forth. Those are events that you see in places like Chicago, San Francisco, LA, and so forth. I mean, we have what I call international world-class large events that if I was to talk to other destinations that have three, 400,000 people in their population base, they don't have events like ours. No, they don't have big market events. I mean, we're very lucky. We, yeah. have, we have major market events in what is a small market, and it's pretty remarkable. And they cut across all demographic levels. Like yep. the tennis, that's one audience. Yep. Coachella, that's a different audience. But we're bringing in people, you know, we got now the gallery classic. That's, that's a different yeah. audience. So you've got... And we weren't leveraging that in the past. We weren't telling the story. I mean, you know, I remember being, even just traveling internationally, I had my Coachella shirt on. And they, they go, well, where is that? And I would say, oh, it's in Palm Springs. They're like, really? I didn't know that. I thought it was in Coachella. Where was Coachella? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they don't, they don't, there was no association to where that event was taking place. Even the same thing for tennis for, for in some cases as well. I mean, there's, right, Indian wells. there's billions of people around the world, right? I mean, and they're being inundated, as we are, we're being inundated with marketing and communications and messaging all the time from different destinations and travel products, whatever it may be. And if, if you're not out there telling your story in a creative way, you're going to get forgotten and or somebody else is going to tell the story for you. And that was the scary part. Is And that's what happened before. People were telling the, telling the story about us that we didn't want told, um, which is not reality and so without having the marketing campaign the marketing team the marketing budget the branding you know all of those um, communication tools there's no way that we can compete against these other destinations when did you transition to the the hotel revenue coming across to you guys they started the T-Bid in 2009 but that was 2% we moved it to 3% in 2004 14, 13, 14, and then so the money started coming in. So we started marketing in 15. So what was the about eight years ago? What was the economic formula prior to the T bid? Where where were the dollars coming from? From the city. So we have oh. so we're a joint powers authority. So we get a percentage of the revenues, and when they did the T bid, they gave the cities back 75 percent. So they reduced it. So the, now the city's contribution to our budget is about eight percent. Okay. T bid is 85 percent of our budget, and then private is seven percent, which is you know. People go on trade shows with us. They buy into marketing co-ops, whatever it may be. We're not membership-based. Got rid of that. First thing I got rid of is, no, we're not members. Everybody's in. Because um, what I found in Phoenix, when we were membership-based there, like the really nice restaurants, like we don't need to be a, we don't need to pay money to be a member of the CVB. Why do I need, you know, you need me more than I need you. So let's, let's get rid of this game. Get rid of membership. Now there's opportunities for our partners that they want to 
have a better location on our website, enhance listings, be part of newsletters, whatever it may be, they can buy into marketing, optional marketing things. But we wanted, I wanted when somebody comes to our website and sees, God, look at all the restaurants, look at all these things there are to do here. If, we, if we're membership-based, then what we're doing is we're filtering it, right? At the end of the day, we're basically becoming a filter based on money. And for yeah, what? Like for Twitter's two- blue check. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, let's get rid of the filter. Everybody's in. Let's make sure everybody has a seat at the table, has an opportunity to, to grow their business. And that had to really, I would assume, that really improved the way people felt about the organization. Yeah. Once you, once you allow yeah. everybody in, yeah. then, then it kind of boosts the morale all the way around. Yeah, I mean, you have more people that are rooting for you to succeed, yeah. if that makes right. sense. Yeah. Yes. Are all the cities contributing? All except for Coachella, and that's just because they don't have a hotel yet. Okay. And that's been from day one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's all eight cities plus Riverside County that are part of the JPA. Um, And so we have two boards. We have the JPA Executive Committee, which is the elected officials, and then we have the Visit Greater Palm Springs Board of Directors, which is hoteliers, uh, restaurateurs, attractions, transportation, you name it. There's 30... I think there's eight, 38 members. And you mentioned at some point you started picking up 1% for the vacation homes? 1% for vacation rooms. When, when we renewed our T-bid back in 2021, um, uh, we had an opportunity to allow them to come in. And so they did. Uh, they wanted to come in way back, back in 2012 or 13. And at the time, it was that was vacation rentals were still a little bit of a of a you know hot potato so to speak mm-hmm. still, still still are it, not as bad not as <laughs> yeah. bad um, actually not even close to where it was I think uh, if you look at if you talk to Palm Springs and La Quinta uh, their citations and complaints and everything are just at a record low and during the, noise, the festivals the noise everything is lowered is, yeah. too everybody's figured out this, I think those cities ha- that have them have figured out what the policies are what code enforcement looks like how to educate the visitor that's coming in and keep in mind when we had all the issues during the pandemic the people that were coming in and, and renting, it just wasn't us. It was all across the country. These are individuals that had, you know, government-sourced funds from all kinds of different um, areas, and they weren't our normal customer. And so they were coming in, and they didn't care. So they were, they were you know, kind of creating havoc, making noise, and so forth, just because that just wasn't our regular type of customer. So that was a one-off, which is unfortunately, but I think we're back to where we have the customers that we normally get, the type of customers we're getting. Um, like I said, the cities, I think, are now all in line to understand how, how to operate and govern vacation rentals, I think the owners and so forth. So it's, 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 it's critically important for our destination to have vacation rentals. But the no. timing of that in 2021 yeah. worked out pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, we, are in a, we are in an area that has become, at various times, the number one Airbnb spot in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, that has obviously helped your coffers a little bit, I would assume. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, 1% off of vacation rentals is nowhere near the 3% off of the hotels. They're the majority of our of our budget. Um, but vacation rentals are important. It, it, A, what we've, what we've discovered is I have some of my counterparts in other cities and the hotels there think, oh, the vacation rentals are going to dilute their occupancy and their revenue, whereas it's actually done the opposite here. It's really complemented it um, because not everybody wants to stay in an Airbnb. Not everybody wants to stay in a hotel. People you know, want a little bit of both. It also depends who you're traveling with and how you're traveling. So having that as an option is really important. But if you look at the growth in terms of number of visitors that are coming here, the growth has really come from vacation rentals. And that's allowed, you know, uh, more restaurants to open up, more retail. It's supporting those, you know, things. So I think as we start to shut them down, 
my fear is the person that's going to be affected the most is the small businesses like this one here. Um, you look at small businesses, they're dependent on that type of customer and the number of people that are coming in. It's important to have. So um, I think we're in a good spot with vacation rentals, moving in the right direction. Now that we have those funds, we can use the funds to help create benchmarks and policies and shared best practices, both with the homeowner, the agencies, the visitor, the cities, and so forth. So we can start creating materials. We can start to create videos. We can start to create and go out and look for who's doing it right around the world and bring those practices back so we can use those funds. So our goal is not so much to not necessarily use the funds to market vacation rentals. How do we improve the existence of vacation rentals and how can they coexist you know, in the marketplace? We've already done quite a bit of research. Uh, we bought research both off the shelf and customized, and it shows that vacation rentals don't, you know, they don't impact affordable housing. They don't impact all, all of these issues that a lot of people have claimed in the past. It's, that's just a misnomer. Um, so well, after you had that call with Rolf and the, then the, the festivals shut down, um, there was there was no playbook for that. Did you have a playbook for what Nobody happened had a if playbook. there was a pandemic? Nobody had a playbook for so a pandemic, yeah. Wh- where, what were the biggest things that you had to pivot to? And are there any things that you've decided to leave in place because you found out, oh, this is a better way of doing it? So if you remember during the pandemic, um, we really focused on restaurants in terms of, hey, you know, here's these restaurants you can go pick up, how you can order food to go, whatever it may be. Um, here's how you navigate and do business with, with the retail markets and so forth. And we created a campaign called Love Local mm-hmm. and really focused on locally owned businesses, whether it's retail, restaurants, whatever it is, doesn't matter. And we created that during the pandemic and we're keeping that a, for lots of different reasons. I think, you know, A, what we're seeing is because of the pandemic, travelers want to be connected. They want to go have experiences with locally owned businesses. They, you know, they, they want to have that unique experience that's unique to our destination, um, whatever it may be, uh, whether it's, we have great vintage shops here. So vintage clothing, vintage cops, modernism type, you know, um, accessories and furniture and so forth. And so the Love Local campaign, I think will never go away. It's so important to the visitor. I think it's important to small businesses. It's important to the community. It's a great campaign. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it builds a lot of goodwill at home. So, And people want it. I mean, it's, it's, it makes sense if you think about it. When you travel, you you don't want to you don't want you I don't want to go to touristy spots. I want to go to where the locals are eating and drinking and and shopping and yeah, doing there, things. Right? There's yeah. a small group of travelers that they'll go to the Hard Rock in every city because it's, you know, sure. they get that experience. Yeah. But I think the bulk of travelers really do like to experience yeah. the, the local flavor. That's the and, and that's when I travel. That's definitely what I prefer to do. And and, and and you have to have both. You know, like anything, you have to have a diversified economy. So you have to have both. There are people that want to go to the the national brands or the national whatever it may be those experiences you have to have both um, but they those national brands have the budgets to market themselves the local shops don't and so that's where we can hopefully come in and help out and give the local business a little bit extra exposure and awareness because um, they don't have that corporate brand behind them you we know, saw some of the them. corporate brands pull out during the pandemic so mm-hmm. it would be really nice to be able to help those small businesses yeah definitely bridge the gap yep. yeah yeah obviously the summer that's your, I would assume, your biggest challenge. Yes. And I, I particularly, I assume, with group sales. Yes. So how do you how do you tackle that? How do you 
make 120 palatable. Do you just not talk about the weather? Oh, no, no. You, you, it, it is what it is. There's nothing, you know. You Randy, only, everybody always talks about the weather. That's, that's why right. I still have a job. No way. When I was at the chamber, I was told I was not allowed to say it was hot. I was supposed to say it was warming. It's hot. We tell people it's, it's hot. hot. It's a dry heat. It's a dry heat. We you all know, joke about that. There was a rumor when I first moved here in 2002, uh, and this TV station was owned by the Houstons. They never told me this, but there was a rumor that we were not supposed to, in our weather cast, say it was hot. Which <laughs> It's warming. No, it's hot. <laughs> you know, people, do, you need to be honest. People want to be leveled with. People can tell the difference. Yeah. You know. So spending eight years in Phoenix, uh, I saw what they were able to do in the summertime, and they attracted a lot of group business there. And so what happens, uh, if you look at the association market, really from September through May, it's what I call trade associations, professional associations, whether it's medical, legal, financial, there's an association for everything. It's probably a weatherman association, I'm sure. There is. So, so and they're going to primarily meet they're they're usually continuing education credits of some kind or whatever it may be and they're going to meet September through May for the most part and then in the summertime we have what we call smurf business smurf s m e r f so it's social it's military it's educational it's religious it's fraternal those are the groups that meet in the summertime so religious groups um, the volleyball type you know, sporting, cheerleading type events and so forth also take place sometimes in the summertime. But a lot of it is educational, religious, fraternal, military, uh, and so forth. So we're going after those groups. But the challenge was is we would lose two-thirds of our flights in the summertime, and the fares would go up. And these groups are they're on a budget. So they're looking for value both in air access but also hotels. Well, we had the hotel. The rates were in line with the hotel, but they couldn't get here. Uh, we were trying to route them to Ontario at the time, and then bus them out and so forth. They're like, well, we can go to Vegas. We can go to Phoenix. We can go to, you know, Texas. There's all kinds of places we can go. That yeah, have it's a harder access. sell to fly into Ontario than grab yeah. a bus on out. Yeah. So now having Southwest in the summertime, because they're year-round. They're not seasonal. And their success is now starting to show the other airlines what can be done. And if you do look at the airlines that were here in the summertime, American to Dallas, it did very well. I mean, huge load factors. Uh, American added um, service, or actually Alaska added a service to Austin. American came over the top of them and, and kind of took it away from them. But in September of last year, they came out and said that, that Palm Springs Austin was one of their highest load factor, uh, yeah, load percentage factors of all their of all their flights for the in the country in September wow. of last year. I mean, so that that's September. That's, that's kind of surprising. It's amazing. Yeah, it was like 90, 90.4 or something. You know, load factor, huge load factor. So uh, I think. I think if we can get the flights, we can get the groups, and we're already starting to see some of that already. So I think we can be very successful in the summertime. I'm going to add real quick to that, and this is what I, this is my, my, I'm preaching right now, is that we were designed as a destination for November through April, right, if you, if you think about it. And if you go to European countries, uh, whether you're in South America or parts of Spain, wherever it may be, and you go into their downtowns in the summertime, it's hot, but they have shade everywhere. Big trees, big overhangs. They're designed for that type of, that, that kind of heat experience. Right. Now, if you think about, if all of our pedestrian areas had more shade, and we know that in the summertime, even though it's hot, in the shade, it's, it's very tolerable. It's, you know, it's, if you're in the sun, it's miserable at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But if you're walking along in the shade at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're like, okay, I'm thinking that we are going to be able to grow retail and other components of our afternoon business if we can start to redesign how we structure are pedestrian outdoor areas to have more shade, whether it's trees or shade 
straight um, you know, overhangs, whatever it may be, but we've got to think long-term in that direction, and you see that in other destinations. And you have to convince the businesses to invest in that. Or the cities. Or the cities. Yeah. All of Start the planting trees now. Start planting shade so, trees now. Well, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, that's, it is true. And I mean, we have a kind of an inherent advantage because there are a lot of places that are hot but also humid yeah. during those months, and we are not. If you can get in shade yes. here, even at 105 degrees, it feels terrific. Yeah. And it is not a big deal. And I did that in San Antonio. Hundred, you know, it'd be hundred degrees, hundred percent humidity. It doesn't matter where you're at; it's miserable. Uh, so at least here, like you said, if you're in the shade, it's 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 nice. Now, Scott was responsible for rerouting the river through the Riverwalk. Really? Of, yeah, that's, that's, that's so, pretty amazing. It was a big it was a big deal. I kind of remember it in the early '60s. So congratulations! <laughs> I was there. It I ran never... it ran outside of town. Though. It ran through the Alamo. A lot of people don't know. That. <laughs> I was there when they actually expanded the Riverwalk, but I had nothing to do with it. But they did expand it. It was pretty amazing. So what's coming up for you? Spill all the secrets here. What does the Valley need to know that the Palm Springs Visitors Bureau? Well, we're... Um, <laughs> you have said... Keep drinking, Randy. Every, keep drinking. Keep drinking. And you've not yeah, got I've had one Coke <laughs> and a half a drink. <laughs> this is a cumulative thing, Scott, honestly, Visit over Greater the last Palm few years. Springs. What are... So part one of the one of the uh, for the summer the Germans the Brits the French love, they love the heat they love the heat they love the national parks we have a great story to tell with up the top of the tram with San Jacinto Joshua Tree Enza Borrego we're up to the um, national monuments as well so uh, we're going back big into into international we have offices in when I say offices we have firms that we contract with that represent us in the UK Germany France um, and um, Australia. If you wanted to open an Italian office, I, I, uh, yeah, we should chat. We get in line, yeah. <laughs> and we do ad hocs with you know places like Italy, India. Uh, in the past, we were doing a lot of business in China, Japan as well, and so forth. So, but this is the first year that we're actually going to the consumer. And the past was always through the trade. So internationally, ninety-five percent, if not more, book through a tour operator or or a uh, travel agent because in those countries, if something goes wrong on your trip that agency is legally bound to to make it whole or give them a refund, whatever it may be. So, and the pandemic actually, you know, elevated that because a lot of people that didn't book through the travel agencies were stuck and didn't get their money back. So we always had strong relationships with tour operators and travel agents and educating them. The challenge now is a lot of the travel agents that came back are new to the industry. So we have to educate them where we're at, where we're located, what we're all about and so forth. So that takes time. So we, we pay those firms to go in and educate the travel agents and do different kind of promotions and so forth. But this is the first year that we're actually going to the UK and we're spending money on going to the consumer directly through social media um, and digital marketing and some PR and some other things as well. And so we're, we really want to try to elevate ourselves um, with the sole purpose, not sole purpose, I take that back, but with the purpose of that hopefully we get an international terminal at the airport because uh, right now we can't accept flights in unless they're through pre-clearance. So they have to land someplace else before they come here. Correct. So right now we have Canada. So if you're in Vancouver, you go through customs and immigration there first, then you can land here. So th the goal is, is how do we get a nonstop flight to London? How do we get a nonstop flight to Frankfurt? Got to have that terminal. So, and I know we can get London because we had their chief sales officer here right before the pandemic, I think 2018 fell in love with the place and said, hey, we have a flight going to another destination two days a week, six months a year. We want to move that to Palm Springs. I said, okay, great, let's do it. <laughs> but I said, can you help me get a, you know, can you help me get 
Customs and Border Patrol and all of that. And he's like, well, it says Palm Springs International Airport. It does say. And I go, well, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> so uh, aspirational title. And they're going, yeah, that's and they're, a good point. And they're doing a feasibility study for that now. And part of that study has to go to the airlines and say, hey, if we build it, will you, you know, will you come? I know we can get flights to Mexico. So there's, I think there's a huge demand. Oh, there's no question. To, to back and forth for people that want to go to Mexico for great resort destinations, but also people that want to come here from Mexico. We can get a direct flight from here to Cabo. Yeah. You know, yeah. and Cancun. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of opportunity there. And there's, and there's cities in Canada that don't have pre-clearance that would love to have flights to here, like Victoria, British Columbia would love to have a flight, uh, especially in the wintertime, you know, for them. And we'd love to go there in the summertime. So... Uh, I think international is going to be important. We, we're helping fund a little bit of that study, and our portion of that study is to look at other airports that have FIS facilities. Are they successful? What have they done? How did they get the service? What did it take on and so forth? As an example, Fresno has FIS facilities, Fresno, and they get about 230,000 passengers a year from Mexico. So I said, if Fresno can have an international terminal, we can have an international. We got to have an international I would terminal. Think more people are leaving Fresno than going to. No, I, I didn't say. Let's that. not be talking but about Fresno. It's, it's, it's Fresno Yosemite. So they're the that's gateway. Right, to yeah, Yosemite. it is the gateway to Yosemite. That's, that's what we always it's refer also to. The gateway to Bakersfield. So, you know, come on. Uh, I wanted to ask you. Obviously, the biggest part of what you guys do is is marketing, and you talked a little bit about it. You have very divergent audiences yeah uh, and we deal with this in television uh, a wide variety of audiences that are watching on different platforms mm-hmm. uh, talk about the the challenges that you guys have faced and how you've tackled I mean you know there's an Instagram crowd and there's a there's a you know online social media crowd and there's a you know just we watch 30 second spots on TV crowd yeah so how do you kind of divvy that up and, and how have you guys tackled that challenge? Within so, the agency. One thing I learned as a leader is you hire really smart people, people that are smarter than you, and you get the heck out of the way. Uh, we, we've got great marketing team. Colleen Pace is our chief sales and marketing officer. She's fabulous. She's put together a team, um, and we have agencies. And one of the things that we've done is we don't have one agency. We, have, we, we, go, out to other, we go out to different agencies based on their expertise or what demographic we're going after, um, to do project work for us more than anything else. And so connected TV versus broadcast TV versus all the different platforms, they're all designed differently. Um, one of the things that we did, I guess probably five or six years ago, is when I got here, I realized that across all of the cities, the quality of the, of the video content was varied. The messaging was varied. Every, there was no continuity. So I said, let's create a marketing co-op camp program that people cannot say no to. So for, for $25,000, the partner, whether it was a hotel or city, whatever it may be, we will shoot them a 30-second commercial, and then we'll give them a media buy. And the value of that, um, because now they're buying into, you know, off of our media schedule, is about $160,000. Say no to that, right? I mean, that's not what it costs, but that's the value of it. If they went up on their own right. to produce the commercial and go buy the media, it would probably cost them $140,000, $160,000 back then. So every year we've had at least anywhere from 10 to 15 partners. We're shooting that every year with the same production company. Even though they all have their own identity, we know that the, the level of how it's being shot is consistent. So now I can take that content, split it up and divide it because we have co-ownership of that and they own it and we own it. And so now I can take all of that content. So it's a win-win for you as a hotel or a city or partner to tell your message. 
but now I can take that content and I can splice it in with your content and it matches, it works, hmm. right? So that has been the game changer for us. So it not only gave our partners access to marketing platforms and a quality of uh, product that they could never buy on their own or maybe, maybe once or twice, now they can get it on a regular basis from us. We have access to it, they have access to it, and it enabled us to really, I think, create a library of content that we now have access to across the valley. It's amazing. I mean, the footage that we have is simply amazing. And Your image work is, is really fantastic. Uh, I was privy to some of it as yeah. it was getting churned out. And it is just really, it's brilliant, and it paints a gorgeous picture. Yeah, so I think that was the, that's the secret to the from getting the content. Then the other part of that is obviously having lots of young people around you that you know that that are you know in, influencers tapping in influencers, and that's what we could spend an hour talking about the pros and cons of influencers and which ones to pick and who to work with. Um, Lori Rogers in Palm Springs, Black in Palm Springs, she's been doing a lot of work for us. She's been great. Um, so we want to use we, we, instead of always going out looking for like the person that has the most followers and all of that, and you start looking at who they're reaching and the type of product. It was like, no, no, no. Let's start using more local influencers that can really tell the, st the story authentically. Hopefully we can grow them a little bit. They can help us. It's a win-win situation for both uh, entities. And that's really been, I think, uh, important for us as we go out and, and reach that market. Well, you should check out my Instagram. There are a lot of pictures from Little Bar. <laughs> <laughs> Any bar. <laughs> well, uh, hey, hey. So um, <laughs> we got just a couple of minutes okay. left. In, in a interview that you did, some time back, one of the things that you talked about was the necessity for a four-year university mm -hmm. in this area. And we're moving ahead on that now. Um, hopefully it's slow hopefully progress. Slow, but at least we're moving a little bit forward. What are the last thing, are the next things that you would like to see in place in this valley that are going to get us to where we need to be? So one of the issues that we have, we haven't talked about, is workforce development. And we're doing a lot of work on that uh, in terms of trying to help our hotels, trying to, I guess, communicate to the next generation about what career opportunities there are in the hospitality industry. But we'll set that aside uh, for another conversation. The Cal State campus, you know, it, if you look at other destinations, San Diego, Arizona, wherever it may be, when you got 10, 15, 20, 30, 40,000 students, right, they're, they're working part-time in places like this. They're creating nightlife demand, right? So then all of a sudden there's gonna be more things to do at night because that younger audience wants to stay up later and do fun things, which we need in our destination, some later things hey, to maybe do. Maybe we could have a restaurant open past eight o'clock. So, That'd be awesome. So if you have a campus here with 8,000, 10,000 students, it's gonna start to move us in the right direction in terms of helping with the workforce development. They're not gonna all work in the hospitality industry, but they're gonna work there part-time. So that's gonna help take the pressure off a little bit. It'll pr pr provide some nightlife opportunities as well, start to great demand for that. Um, you know, I see us as potentially, you look at Nashville, Austin, and I see this area as that could be that version of a music capital of the West Coast, right? I'd love to see more live music, more venues that have stages and things that are putting on local entertainment. I mean, wouldn't that be great to oh, say yeah. one day that we not only have great music festivals, but we have great live music in our community. But you need the students, obviously, to support that as yeah, well. It, it is true. We, we need a driver to keep these places open a little bit later. And yeah. And, and 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 go after that diversified music. We can't, you know, we don't. You're you saying know. it all can't be just a cabaret it, or piano bars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Patrick. I, wow, that's, that, that, that there like goes a summer wind. Shot because <laughs> piano bar is my bread and butter. But that's that's okay. It's okay. Um, 
And, you know, and I, and I think the College of the Desert, the culinary uh, hospitality campus is critical. I mean, if you look around the country, places that have huge tourism economies all have some type of hospitality program in place. So hopefully we can get that going and get it established. Culinary is a huge um, weakness for us in terms of, you know, the restaurants are always looking for trained individuals that are in the culinary industry. It's very difficult because they're having to train them get them up, get them going, and so forth. And if they can come in already trained, it's going to just give us an edge. And if you can't get great service and great experiences and you can get it other places, then that's going to be a competitive disadvantage for us. So we've got to, that's kind of the piece that we need to fix as well. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. It has been. And and Scott, you and your organization are one of the ones that have kind of pulled us through over the last couple of years. So thank you for that. That's been a really important function for the Valley. And I, I want to say credit to the team. I'm, I'm surrounded by incredible leadership team, incredible uh, organization. Board has been very supportive. The cities have all been supportive. One of the things that I've, um, that I've seen is that we're all collaborating. We're all working together. And that's so important for us when you have multiple cities like ours, when you're competing against these other destinations that are one or two cities, we have to collaborate. We have to work together. So regional collaboration is critical. Working together with the hotels, the restaurants, the bars, working together, just really telling the message. One last plug um, is we have an ambassador program. Anybody interested in becoming an ambassador, it's a half-day program where you learn about uh, kind of who we are, the brand, the things that are going on in the destination. We're working with CUD to create a virtual version of that as well. Helps with customer service. This all kind of ties back from a long time ago where somebody was in a, customer was in a restaurant and said, what's there to do here? And the waiter said, there's nothing to do here. Go to Vegas. Oh, geez. And the, tab- oh. And the table oh. behind them was the mayor of that city. <laughs> so that became kind of like, how do we fix that? And so now, you know, we're teaching, we're teaching people about Ask the right questions. How much time do you have? Do you have a car? What are you interested in? What's your budget? You know, on and so forth. And no matter what the question is, this is not the answer. <laughs> this is not the answer. <laughs> that, yeah. that was not. All right. But we have the website. People can find more information on the ambassador program at. Well, visit Greater Palm Springs uh, is our website. And if you go to the partner portal at the top, it'll take you to our partner section. And then within that, you can learn more about the ambassador program. And um, the more ambassadors we have, the more collaboration we have. And the more success we're all going to have together. Visit Palm Springs. Greater Palm Springs. Visit greaterpalmsprings.com. That would be a great name for the organization. Visit greaterpalmsprings.com. I'm just going to say it a couple times. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for spending time with us. This is truly a big conversation here at Little Bar. I think this is really fascinating stuff. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Patrick, we did it again. We killed 45 minutes like it was nothing. Uh, Thank you very much, Scott. And our our thanks to John McMullen, our producer. He handles all the technical side of this. And and also, he's built a fantastic website, which is bigconversationslittlebar.com. Hey, listen, guys, we'll be back again with another great Big Conversation Little Bar next time around. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations Little Bar.